Welcome to the Blues Room, everybody. Dr. Joe Armstrong here with uh, the OG3 and two guests today. We have a guest from the University of Minnesota College of Veterinary Medicine, and that's Luciano Cachetta. And he is really focused on transition management, some, some physiology in his research at the university. And he's brought a friend today to help us get through some of those similar topics. And that's Phil Cardozo. Phil is from the University of Illinois. He's with the Department of Animal Science and a veterinarian. Got his degree in Brazil, worked in Brazil for, for five years in private practice, got his master's in South Brazil as well. Uh, worked for a little bit of time in Brazil and then came to the United States to, to, to join the University of Illinois, got his PhD, and now he's faculty there at the university. Phil does a lot of work with nutrition strategies and transit the transition period, and that's our focus today. Uh, so thank you for being here, Phil. We really appreciate you giving us your time. Thank you. I've gotten to know Luciano. We work together on a couple of projects and uh, he's going to be acting kind of like if you listen to the, the episodes with Pam Ruig uh, as Aaron Royster, another another host today to kind of help us get into the topic today with Phil. So thanks for being here, Luciano. Thank you. Before we get into the topic, as always, we have our two questions. Emily is going to lead us through the two questions. And I I think I know which one to ask first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the first question both of you need to answer is what is your favorite breed of beef cattle? So Phil, we'll have you go first. Favorite breed of beef cattle? I'll say Angus. Brad is disappointed. That's All right. Wrong, wrong answer. <laughs> Luciano, what is, what is your favorite breed of beef cattle? I'll say Melor. That's the one that I yeah, worked yeah, with yeah. in Brazil growing up. But I, ha I have an excuse for mine, though. There's okay, let's hear your excuse. Yeah, there's a storytelling that at least back in Brazil, most likely here in the U.S. as well, from the, if you get books, beef cattle books from the 40s, uh, 30s, Angus cows was fairly short. Uh, uh, Air Force as well, but uh, Angus specifically. And then if you get some books from the 60s, in a fairly short amount of time, that cow got super taller, right? And some people say that there is some hosting that was put into that breed to make that happen. If that's true or not, I don't know. But I would say Angus may have a little bit of hosting in them, and maybe that's why I like it. Maybe it's because of the steak. Who knows? Nalora had pretty good steaks too, though. Well, I'm uh, I'm happy with Angus' answer for sure. That's my that's mine as well. So. Uh... I, I don't uh, I don't care how you got there. I just love it, and that puts us back on top with oh, uh, with Herefords. So uh, Herefords were at six, and now Angus are at six. Black Baldy's at two. Belted Galloway at two. Brahmin at one. Stabilizer one. Gelvy one. Scottish Highlander one. Kianina one. Charlay one. Simital one, and now Nalore at one. That's uh, that's getting to be a long list. I, I I there's a lot more breeds out there too, so it could get even longer. All right, let's go to that second question. All right. I just want to say I enjoy the variety. So second question, you may have guessed it, is what is your favorite breed of dairy cattle? And so, Luciano, I'm going to have you go first this time. Favorite breed of dairy cattle? I do like Holstein. Oh, I wish everybody could see Bradley and Joe's faces. They're not pleased. I'm happy as a peach, so it's all good. All right, Phil, what's your answer? I would say Holstein as well. 
Boy, that seems commanding for Holstein. Brad and Joe will tell you that the right answer is Jersey, but they're mm -hmm. wrong. They're so, fun to work with. Yes. Jerseys are fun. <laughs> Joe, what's our tally at now? Uh, we're just going to skip this because that was a <laughs> hard-hitting day for, for Jerseys. Uh, that puts Holstein's at 10, Jersey's at 7, Brown Swiss at 4, Dutch Belted at 2, Montbelliard at 2, Normandy at 1, and then we have one neutral vote. So that's uh, that's disappointing. That's fine. I, I, I'll i take the comments. The jerseys are fun to work with because they are, and they're easier to work with because they're small. So, I mean, if you guys want to reconsider your answer, now's the time. <laughs> uh, no take backs, Joe. Oh, Sorry. Yeah. Oh, pass. Okay, fine. Okay, so Holstein's back out in front. Uh, Angus and Herford's now tied. So very, very big day. All right, let's get into the topic today. And the topic today is really transition management and the nutritional strategies that we use to, to help our cows get through that period. So before we get too far into this, I wanna make sure everyone's on the same page. So let's just define that transition period. I think there's several different definitions out there, but Phil, what is it to you? I think that it was established long time ago by Grummer and Drakeley that comes three weeks before, three weeks after calving for cows. That's my take on it. Some people may extend to four weeks after calving, but I think the scientific would be three weeks before, three weeks after calving. Okay, so the the six weeks surrounding calving, three weeks before, three weeks after, that's what we're talking about today and how we influence uh, cows to be successful during that period and the different nutritional strategies that we're working on. Now, again, before we get into the specific strategies, uh, why, why is this such a tough period for a cow? Why do they... Can I tendency. get a point of clarification first? Yeah. Since we're talking about what is considered the transition period. And yeah, I always use the three weeks before, three weeks after for calving as kind of the standard. But, you know, we also hear some other common terms when we're talking about cows specifically before they calve. And that would be, you know, your close-up cows or your far-off cows. So are we really focusing on close-up cows today in that three-week period? Or we're going to be looking at both? Uh, just trying to kind of get the stage fully set here. I think that's that's a good point, and that's something we can discuss as well, is what is the best strategy during the dry period. And so when we talk about transition period, scientifically or on the literature, we are talking about the close-up period or the pre-fresh, even though because of some management issues uh, or space, some people may make it that pre-fresh two weeks instead of three weeks. Uh, so that's why we like to talk about week instead of that uh, group of cows, because then pre-fresh for some may be 15 days, right? And the post in the fresh period may be a little bit shorter too because of space at the farm or other things. But I think that's how classical cows are fed. They are dried off 60 days before calving and they stay in that far off period. Uh, 30 days, 21 days before calving, they go to this pre-fresh or close-up period and then they go to lactation, right? And I think there's some information there that, hey, you know, we learn a lot about how to feed cows. Maybe we don't need to give that 60 days of rest. Maybe you can give a little bit less, uh, 50 days, 45 days. Uh, and maybe we don't need to do this far off close up strategy. We can feed one diet throughout the whole throughout that whole period. So it's all up for grabs out there. And uh, most likely we'll have to fit the management and resources for each specific farm. 
So we're really concerned about that three weeks prior to calving, three weeks after calving, and how to get that animal through that period, knowing that we're going to be dealing with some negative energy balance issues in that area or potentially um, worse on some farms and better on others, depending on strategies and cows and everything else. But we're focusing on how to make that transition go as, be as best as we can, which means that we're going to have to be talking about the dry period and other uh, nutritional factors in those all those different areas to, to make that work. Phil, walk me through why that transition period is so tough on a cow. Yeah, that, that comes back to this literature from 1995, 1999, where they were saying, hey, the most challenging period for dairy cows is this transition period. And they realized that most of the metabolic disorders, and we are talking about ketosis, we may be talking about hypocalcemia or milk fever, uh, DAs, uh, retained placenta, and, and we could name a few more, they're all happening around this period. So to say, hey, if we make cows go through that healthy, uh, that it's going to be just a little list of, or a short list of things that can take a cow out of a dairy. And so that's what they were referring to, you know, like mastitis as well happening around calving, a uh, period of immune suppression. So their defenses are not good enough. There's a lot of hormonal things happening at the cow that naturally makes her more susceptible to diseases. So that's kind of what they figure out. And then they've also associated that with the mobilization of fat during the dry period and the fresh period. So they were able to do some liver biopsies and they saw, ooh, maybe this cow is overwhelmed with lipids and we need to, to take a hold of this. So a lot of this understanding in the 90s and early 2000s were around the liver, right? So you even talk about fatty liver. These cows have fatty liver. You, you don't hear that anymore. And I think that got transitioned to ketosis. Now we have subclinical ketosis. So, or we have subclinical hypocalcemia uh, that we kind of didn't discuss a long time ago. You're talking about milk fever and hypocalcemia, right? Nowadays, is, I think it's pretty rare to find a farm where you have a high prevalence of uh, hypocalcemia or cows falling down. It's just something we don't see anymore. I hear stories from, you know, some of the older veterinarians that I worked with that uh, it seemed like that's all they did was run around in IV uh, milk fevers. And, and that really has become less and less and less as people get on top of some of these uh, management strategies that manage those things. But now we're moved, like you, like you said, Phil, to worrying about the subclinical forms of these. And, and Luciano, can you kind of tell me why these subclinical forms are, are so important and why producers should care about them? Yeah, so the, the subclinical forms, uh, it's something that uh, I have been studying quite a bit. Uh, and it's important because a lot of the problems and a lot of the, the decreased production and decreased performance of the cow is related to that. Like, indeed, if they have a clinical case, they also have a decreased production and performance. But subclinical also has an effect to it. So, and because if you, for example, if you think about milk fever, now what, like Phil mentioned, we have about like 1% incidence of milk fever, but you have like 50 to 60% of cows showing some, some uh, subclinical hypocalcemia. So you have like a greater population of cows being affected by those subclinical problems that is leading to a, sizable economic loss and production loss for the cow. So that's why it's important to understand those subclinical diseases too. 
So it's all about money, uh, part of it, and the health of your cows and and all the welfare issues that go along with the, the health of your cows. But it really does come down to money when it comes to figuring out these subclinical forms of either hypocalcemia or ketosis, uh, the two big ones, and then uh, trying to reduce the incidence of all these other diseases that happen on the farm. So that's that's where we're headed today. I think uh, Phil kind of mentioned this briefly that we're there's a there's a traditional model that's out there for how we we work through the nutritional strategies around the dry and the transition period. So I think we'll start there and then we'll kind of work into some of the work that's been done that shows us that maybe there's some other ways to do it and some different options out there. So Phil, let's let's walk through, okay, my cow goes dry. What what am I what am I going to feed that cow in a general sense? We don't have to get into specific rations, but you know how how am I approaching that dry period when that cow is dried off? Sure. And I think the the way that we've been doing that, not just here in the US through the you know requirements of cows, but in Europe is the same way. We try to determine what is the requirement of that cow. And then we try to match that, not go beyond, not go below, right? And as you dry a cow, the thing that you were most worried about is that, hey, that cow is not producing milk anymore. So the energy requirement reduces drastically, right? Uh, and with that, some other uh, requirements as well. You may say protein requirements, everything. So the first thing is to make sure that diet is adequate. So you're probably going to be using some more forages in, in that diet, right? And you're going to be worried about that other evolution to happen as, you know, as perfect as you can. Usually we don't have a huge challenge to feed that cow, right? You're going to be using maybe some forages that passed a little bit that you don't want to feed your dairy cows, your lactating cows. You may target that to uh, that dry cow. And the amount of corn silage, depending on the amount of starch that you have, right? In Illinois, we do nothing and we get 200 bushels an acre of corn. Some areas in Missouri, I know that's not true and you may not even get 100 bushels per acre. So if you translate that into amount of starch per acre in corn silage, you can see that you have two different worlds within the Midwest, right? So trying to make sure you understand the requirement and then feed for that. And usually that means diluting the energy of that high starch corn silage that we have here in the Midwest, if not, you know, overall in the US. So usually here, a 30% starch is pretty common to have a corn silage. Maybe in the West Coast in California, you may get at 24 on average, uh, but it's still pretty high if you consider other places in, in the world, right? So to match that requirement that usually going to be around 16 mega cow per day in a hosting cow, you do need to dilute that energy. You cannot just feed corn silage. That's going to put her beyond. And I think that's something we learned from, from research is that Cows, they are not very good at controlling themselves in how much energy to eat, right? There is a thought process that, hey, once her metabolism reaches a certain amount or a certain energetic level measured by ATP or whatever you want to talk about, that she would stop eating, right? And I think at least in our diets based in corn silage, we've seen that that's not true. They're going to eat more than what they need. And that's where that ends up causing lipid accumulation uh, subcutaneously that we can see through body condition score or early on, on the first steps that happen in the mesentery. So inside their belly, 
that starts some accumulation of fat that usually is not very well captured. And actually, we saw that if we feed that high energy or corn silage based without diluting that energy for 21 days or 40 or 30 days, that's already enough to increase that amount of fat around the intestine. So that internal fat. And maybe that triggers some of the problems with metabolic disorders that we were talking about and overload, overloading the liver of that cow. And I, I think that's that's something that I've seen, you know, completely subjectively in practice. You know, I, I and I'm sure you guys have seen it too. You, the DA cow that you cut open has a body condition that doesn't look all that bad. And you, but when you get inside, it, it, she's full of fat everywhere. So externally, that body condition looks like she would score just fine, but internally, she's a completely different completely different body condition if that's what you're going to base it on. And I, that's completely subjective. So I don't have any data behind that, but I, I think I see that. And there is some data to show that, that that is true, especially when it comes to milk, milk yield, right? That it doesn't necessarily need to be an external body condition change to have some of these effects uh, in the, in the transition period. So that's kind of the goal of the dry period, right? I mean, that that's pretty well established that we're trying to meet requirements, but we're not trying to do more. We're not trying to do less. And we're trying to uh, kind of, keep ourselves from gaining body condition if we can that that's pretty well established across the board right yeah and i think you have during that period you have a mammary gland that needs to recover regenerate or those alveoli the cells they need to grow or recuperate right or they need to get rid of the dead cells uh, from that mucus secretion from the previous lactation and also there is likely right there's going to be a fetus that is going to be inside that cow that also needs to uh, have some of those nutrients as well. So we've seen some impact of whatever you're feeding before calving may affect the calves when they come out of the cow, independently of what happens after calving, right? So some kind of, uh, I don't know, in uterine effects of some of the things, um, some nutrients. So I think we have learning a lot about that, right? So I think usually talking about back on those 90s, uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, we have like, we're gonna do the research in metabolic disorders and liver and fatty liver around transition period and that's it. And now I think uh, we are being able to connect some other things like reproduction, for example, right? Uh, and, and hopefully that starts bringing the discussion, okay, veterinarians now they are more directly associated with reproduction now we'd like to create a conversation with the nutritionist because it's all on the same boat, right? So I, I think that's kind of important, yeah. So, you know, one of the things I hear when, I, when I'm out on farms a lot of times when we're talking dry, dry cow diets is they hear, okay, we need to not feed massive amounts uh, of energy and allow these cows to, to kind of gorge themselves and not, and we're, so we're trying to limit some of that. But what I hear is, okay, well, that means I just need to add a ton of hay to my diet and, and then everything's fixed. And is that, is that true? Is that not true? That's, that's a very good point that, uh, and I think that's one of the challenges that we have, right? And you guys work with extension. You can appreciate that is that we may go there and talk in a conference for 40 minutes and we talk exactly what we talk about here and the way people get that information and apply in the field it's totally different, right? One farmer is gonna do exactly what you said. Hey, somebody told me I need to throw hay in my diet and they throw hay in the diet. 
Another one said, hey, we need to have 30% starch corn silage. And then they search for that or they cut that corn higher to get the corn, whatever. So I think, unfortunately, uh, if I would, not, I don't know, I'm not sure unfortunately, right? But let's say if I were to compare a swine or a poultry farm or establishment with a dairy, uh, even though in the US we have a lot of uh, similarities among farms, there's still different challenges among all, cow, all farms, right? So the way that the strategy will work for one farm may not be the same as the other one. So it's very different than farmers getting their feed already from uh, a company, right? Like saying the swine industry, hey, you got your diet in the bin. That's what you fed this stage, this stage. On dairy farms, that company that buys the milk, they are expecting the farmer to source all that diet for those animals, right? So space may be limiting. Uh, what is the tractor or what is the wagon that is mixing that diet? It's going to affect the physical aspects of that diet. So oftentimes we talk about the nutrients in that diet, in the composition. But if cows are sorting like crazy, right, they are picking aside that large fiber and everything else, that's going to be worse because now they're eating even a super high diet, even though you put that. So that's where sometimes, oh, but I don't have the chance of doing that because I have just a few cows in that close-up period, right? So that's where, well, maybe you'll be better off doing one diet during the dry period so you can mix for more cows. Then you're going to have 30, 40 cows to mix for. Your mix, are gonna, it's going to have, I don't know, 2,000 pounds as fed. Now the whole system work better, works better, right? So that's what is the tricky situation to, to get from. So it's going to, and that's where I think the veterinarian and the nutritionists, they need to work together because it's extra eyes looking into the same thing to making sure things are happening consistently at the farm, right? So if the vet goes there and check that TMR and it seems like, hmm, this cow seems to be sorting, you see a lot of long particles, or maybe it's part of his program or her program to do some pay state boxes to kind of figure out the distribution of those fibers. I think that's hugely important as well. This is gonna sound strange i think coming from now two veterinarians are saying it you know your nutritionist is very important and we joke all the time that okay veterinarians and nutritionists is butt heads all the time right and that's they're constantly blaming each other for everything but really when it comes down to it you need to have uh those two people at your operation really working closely together i'm a big proponent of working with a nutritionist and i think you need to because we've shown it is a delicate balance you can't just toss a bunch of hay or toss a bunch of straw into the diet and expect things to be balanced, like Phil's talking about. You need that nutritionist involved. And then you need, uh, in my opinion, a good nutritionist is a good a nutritionist that's willing to come to the farm and check on the difference between the paper ration and the ration that's in the bunk. And that's that's a huge difference sometimes. And that's where the veterinarian, I think, can can be involved. I personally, this is my opinion, I tend to focus on the things surrounding nutrition that I can observe while I'm on the farm and I try to not be in the ration. Okay. I mean, I'll have that discussion if the nutritionist would like to, but that's the nutritionist realm is the ration and what's there. And, and they know more about that than I'll ever know. So I try to focus on, okay, what's in the bunk. How's it mixing? Are the cows sorting things like that, that I'm going to have manure on my hand so I can check manure scores. Those are the things that I think a veterinarian can do really well. 
So this is a veterinarian telling you, I'm plugging nutritionists. I'm telling telling everybody out there that they're a great thing to have involved on your farm and you need them to get this balance right in, in a lot of cases. You yeah, heard it here first, folks. And then I, I think, one, like you just said, you're behind the cows, you're palpating a lot of groups of cows, right? I, I think that the body condition score, I, I think that's a good thing that it can get from you. You're there, you can very fairly quickly assign that. And then I think the challenge, not the challenge, but then the, the thing is for the farmer is any data that they don't use to make action, it becomes useless, right? So, and I think we are seeing that a lot with the robots as well, I have a lot of data. But what are the information, what is the data that is being used to make action or to take action? And that, I would say that's information, right? That you, you can use, you can digest, and then you can take action. Uh, I think we need to learn more from the robots on that. Uh, and I think we are going that direction. But I think in the cow as well, I think we, we've used, and I remember learning like, okay, your dry cow needs to be at 3.5, right? needs to be that body condition score. And then a mid lactation cow needs to be like this, a high like uh, a fresh cow needs to be this. And, and, and I think that uh, two things happen at the farm that maybe the nutritionist or even the veterinarian is not very into it. Maybe the manager for health or something, but how cows get moved into groups. I think that's something very interesting that, and even from research perspective is very hard to capture. Uh, because that's happening in a commercial farm. So we, we don't have that, right? We have our cows all follow up. They don't change because we want to research other things, right? So we need to isolate that factor. But if you just think about the, the, the person, right? The human side of things, the manager or that employee, how do they decide to move it from the fresh pen? So that means those cows that just calved to the high pen. That means the cow they're producing a lot of milk, right? And usually it's going to be a cow that it's going to be healthy. And how they define healthy, it's still kind of, a, I think we're going to, if we interview them, a lot of farms, they're going to have different uh, perspectives. Some of them say, no, I do metric checks. So I check for uterine secretions and I know exactly when to move. But I think one thing that can collaborate, and usually some of them are based on the vet. I remember when I was in Brazil, that was the case. Hey, you don't breed any cow before I tell you, right? And I would start palpating cows at 30 days after calving. And that was before synchronization protocols were very popular, right? Like I think a, a shot of Ginner Age was like 25, 30 bucks when I was in practice, right? So it was kind of, oof, that's hard. Nowadays it's like, you know, two bucks, 250 or something, prostaglandin and Ginner Age is, it's, you know, everybody uses fairly uh, quickly. So then the vet can start palpating those cows a little bit later. That's kind of the point also to evaluate, to make sure that cow is ready. I think that brings that reproductive success for the vet. And I think that body condition score change, I think that's one of the things that the farm should focus at. So if the vet is looking at body condition score at dry off, at close up and then when they are breeding the cow and see how is that changing at calving they can do so you can establish some points where that vet is helping to define that body condition score but don't look into that number but look into how much is changing i think that's important and i think then telling employees to figure out the v and the u 
you know, like on the pins of the cow. So you don't even need to talk about 325 or 3.5. That can help what cows are going to be moving on or moving or is staying a little bit more in that fresh period, right? And I think maybe that's going to also allow to avoid fat cows coming into late lactation and getting fat at the dry period, because that's another big question. What do I do with the dry cows? There's nothing you can do with the fat dry cows. Sorry. That's something that probably you should have done from the high to the low group or after they peak or something like that, that should be changed. But I think you can start from the fresh period and defining how the cows are moved into other groups. I think body condition score might be one of the most underutilized things on the dairy. And as more research comes out, you know, whether it's uh, Phil's work or whether it's Fricky's work at, at, at Wisconsin showing the, the change in body condition score post, post calving and what that does to reproductive success later. I mean, body condition is something that I, I, I personally like to train someone on the farm to do it because there's times that it's really important for them to take a body condition where the vets might not be there. So I really like when uh, the vet is there to assist in teaching that, but it's someone who's there and it's the same person doing it all the time, most of the time to say, okay, at dry off, it was this, at calving, it was this, at first preg check, it was this. And that gives you an idea of, okay, is it fluctuating that much? Is it going up uh, post calving? Is it going down? So I think that's a really uh, underutilized uh, measurement on the farm. Just to add to that, like back in, before coming to University of Minnesota, I was practicing in different institutions, but I was also practicing one of the strategies that we use. We did train people at the farm to do dry off and calving body condition score. But the, the peak lactation, it happens to be when you palpating cows for that first breeding. So like the vet can definitely help. And that also helps create that connection between the vet and the nutritionist, which it's overall, it just helps the farm in general. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, any way that you can, you can open the door to talk to that nutritionist more uh, is a good thing. And I, I, it's my first call. If something's going wrong on the farm and it, it's a relatively big thing, it's first call when I leave the driveways and the nutritionist check in with them to make sure uh, we're on the same page. So we got a little off topic. We started talking body condition a lot and we will probably get back to that a little bit, but what we need to do is kind of move on to these transition diets that we talk about. You know, uh, Phil has really hinted at a lot. There's basically, there's two different ways to look at it. You've got two diets where you feed a close-up diet and that would be most likely our traditional uh, negative DCAD diet versus a, a one diet throughout. So uh, let's walk through DCAD first. I think a lot of people are, are pretty familiar with why we do that, why it works and how it relates to calcium. So Phil, kind of give me your, your 30 second elevator speech on negative DCAD. Yeah, so I think that's actually one of the things that really impacted uh, metabolic disorders during the transition period was the negative DCAD diet that really reduced the amount of milk fever or hypocalcemia that happened in cows. And it's fairly easy. So it's the difference between your cations and anions, and you're making that diet a little bit more acidic. So cows can mobilize more calcium more readily after calving. That's the story. So, I mean, there's lots of research out there to show that that reduces all sorts of things. That leads to reductions in a lot uh, of our diseases that happen around freshening uh, and, and allows for, for more productive cows, less cost on the treatment side, all of those things. 
but I think there's cons to the the negative DCAD diet as well. And Phil's kind of uh, addressed some of those where we're talking about having to move these cows to a new group uh, at close up. And, and like you said, Phil, we don't really know how much that affects the cows, but it probably affects them in some way, right? Yeah, so, um, and I'm not sure I would tie uh, the negative DCAD strategy to close up, right? So in, there are uh, points where, for example, we dry cows at 40 days or 45, and they feed a negative DCAT diet throughout that whole dry period. However, that probably is more expensive than only feeding for those 21 days. So we know that feeding for that last 21 days, it's good enough to, to cause the benefits after calving and avoid the hypoglycemia. However, if you feed more, uh, depending on the negative DCAD, right? That's not detrimental to the cow, but it'll be detrimental to the system where it can be more expensive. But again, it's a decision maybe more on the management side of things on, hey, now I have two diets or should I have one diet? And I think some of the cons, especially when it started is how you're gonna do that, right? Uh, so usually you're gonna increase the amount of chloride, amount of sulfur in that diet. And usually, especially sulfur, those things are, not very palatable. So in the beginning, there was a lot of pushback, and I'm saying the beginning 20 years ago, uh, where ammonium sulfate was the main source of that um, negativity or of those anions. And cows just hate it. And then you have reduced intake, and that's a disaster. Anything that is going to cause your cows to eat less before calving, they're already going to drop from 30 to 20% on those three weeks. So then you're reducing the whole nutrients for that cow. So that's not a good idea. So usually an indication that you are doing it right is that if I had cows with a negative decay diet or without, their intakes should be very similar. If my intakes are much lower because I'm using this negative decad, then we have to rethink what is in that uh, anion configuration. You know, some people, they buy a product from a company some people would just make themselves and mix the minerals themselves, right? And it's all, again, it's gonna depend on each farm how much negative they need to go because usually your forages are gonna be different. They're gonna have different concentrations of mainly potassium, for example, uh, but also sodium and other things that may need more negative uh, products to cause that diet itself to be negative decad, right? So I think that's one of the, the cons, again, is like there is not a formula where I can tell you feed minus 15 a decad and it's going to work for everyone. That doesn't happen. So again, if that is a strategy, that's where you need your nutritionist involved to kind of figure all that out, balance everything to where it's supposed to be. Uh, it, it's a proven strategy. Uh, we have a lot of data behind it. Um, Luciano, you've done some, some work with calcium to show it really does affect reproduction and, and after calving really does affect how they do in the future and how they cycle. So DCAD is, a, is, a, is not just about getting that cow up and running to milk, but it also affects her reproduction down the road. And that's all related to calcium. So tell me a little bit more about how effective DCAD is for calcium and how that affects reproduction. Well, one thing just to circle back a little bit to what you were talking to Phil before is definitely DCAD, very important and very helpful. But one thing that we have to remember is to measure 
urine pHs to see if we are where we want it. Uh, we see many times the diet is planned for a certain level and you're not reaching it or you're below it. So uh, make sure you measure it to make sure the diet is where you want. And then for what you asked about DCAD and uh, hypocalcemia, uh, a little bit of background on the work that I did before uh, was before DCAD was very popular at the region where I was at, like upstate New York. Research-wise, I was lucky to have uh, herds that we're not using. We got actually more hypocalcemia, and that definitely had an effect on those cows that have uh, hypocalcemia not getting psych taking longer to return to cyclicity, which leads them to taking longer to get pregnant. But more importantly, what we saw at that point and then has been uh, shown again by other groups is it's more important even than the cow being hypocalcemic at the day of, of uh, calving. It's like those cows that do not uh, reinstate that normal calcium levels postpartum. Those cows that at the time we call chronic, now we call them persistent hypocalcemic. So those cows that stay with low calcium for more than two, three days, those are the really problematic cows. And that has this association with this hypocalcemia, but it also probably has something to do with those cows overall just not adapting well to the transition. So I think Phil alluded to when he started talking about DCAD, he talked about like that was a huge contributor for the better transition of cows. Uh, I think hypocalcemia and if we talk hyperketonemia, uh, ketosis, they're all like together and there's a root cause for all of them that like just lead the cow to not be successful to transition. Uh, so that's it, that's my take on how hypocalcemia as well as other metabolite, metabolic diseases leading to this poor repro performance. So if a producer doesn't want to to go with a negative DCAD diet, with controlled energy diets, we're we're basically feeding a high amount of forage like we we're talking about in the dry period. And we're just gonna continue are we just gonna then take that same diet and continue it all the way through the transition period, Phil? Yeah. So so the idea is that you have a control energy diet. So that's kind of physically regulating how much energy the, the cow is eating to the right amount, not more, not less. And then to the diet, you can add a group of minerals that is going to ca cause it to be a negative DCAD diet. So you can have a control energy diet as a negative DCAD or not. And that can depend a little bit on the challenge that that farm has with the forages like we talk about. So when the nutritionist put all that an, uh, analysis into the software, he or she's going to see that mm, you have too much potassium. This is too positive. We need to bring it down. And like I said, if you bring it down too much or too negative, that's bad for the cow. She's going to eat less. And one way to catch it, like Luciano was talking about, was, hey, you can do urine pH once a week on those cows. And if it goes too low, you have a problem. And if it doesn't go low enough, it's just not working for many reasons. It can be that you have cows there are overcrowded and some of them don't eat and the other ones eat and then you see a variation on that urine pH. Uh, it can be, like I said, the mineral that you're giving is they are just refusing to eat. It's not palatable enough. Your mixture may be not good. So they are being able to sort again or to kind of uh, determine what they're going to eat. It's very hard to find a technology like we are talking about 
uh, strategy, right? Negative decad that I can just go behind a cow, I measure urine pH, and I don't know exactly what's going on, right? If I feed contour energy diet, I don't know if the energy is right or not 100%. I don't have a strategy, right? Uh, so I think that's where farmers could take advantage of, figure out even if the management or if the feeders, if everything's going well, you should see that urine pH drop. And, and I think this is, this is uh, probably some of my own misconception and producers that I've worked with, because I see, at least in my experience, a lot of nutritionists advocating for one or the other, where we're, we're going to go all in on a controlled energy diet, and we're not going to worry about DCAD, or we're going to go, you know, really work on negative DCAD diet, and we're not going to really worry about the controlled energy piece. But what, what I'm hearing and make sure I'm right is that actually blending the two together is, is probably the best chance of success for a lot of operations, depending on what feeds available. Yeah. So I think additionally, that's, I think what we, we've, we have been learning is that some of these strategies, I think they add up, they just work better for the cow, right? And other things is going to be, okay, we dilute that energy, but remember energy is not a nutrient, right? It's not something, hey, buy go there and buy me 10 energy. It's, it's not like that, right? So it's made of protein, fat, starch, carbohydrates. So when you're diluting that, some other things you get diluted as well, like protein. So you really need to make sure that's getting to the cow as well. Bradley, what, what are you doing up at, at, uh, at Morris? Uh, so you've got, uh, it, well, maybe it's the same, maybe it's different for the organic and, uh, and the conventional herd. What are you what are you doing for your dry cows and how are you handling transition period? There's a transition period for cows? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's probably, it is very different for the organic versus the conventional herd. You know, the, the organic herd, there's not much you can do. Uh, not a lot of, you know, a lot of different products that you can use. So we do work with a nutritionist. There's no doubt about it. And and balance the ration for the dry cows. Uh, probably a lot more hay diet than we would uh, considered corn silage, but a conventional herd, we again work with the nutritionist uh, to make sure things are going well. So I, I did like Phil's point though about uh, there's some calf effects after during the dry cows, you know, and I've seen that as well. We're, whereas some of our cows have during the dry period or on TMR ration versus a cow that's totally on pasture during the dry period, you know, uh, we've seen reduced growth and reduced birth weight of calves. We haven't looked at a lot as far as health of those calves, but notice there is some differences in, in uh, you know, our organic versus our conventional herd in, in pasture and how that affects cows. I, I think one thing that we tend not to think about when we talk about transition period is first lactation heifers. So, a heifer that becomes a cow. And uh, those are always a challenge. We probably have more challenges with heifers becoming cows during the transition period than we would with cows sometimes. Um, because that, that's a, in my mind, that's a bigger step uh, to go from a heifer to a cow than a cow that's already lactated. The, the heifer transition is tough because if they go from hay or trying to get them from pasture or whatever into a, a ration where they're expected to milk, that, that's tough on a heifer. I think that brings up a pretty good point. And I, I mean, grazing herds are, are difficult in a lot of ways because there's less research out there. There's a lot more 
sometimes things that that actually apply more to the beef side of things than the dairy side of things when we're talking about grazing and pasture management and how to do all that. But it does bring up a point of uh, diet change in all of this. So, Phil, how how much does that matter? How similar should my dry cow diet or ration be to my fresh pen and my and then my lactating diet? Yeah, that, that's a good point, and um, I don't I don't think we have a lot of uh, in vivo studies about it, uh, and I think it's uh, we have some in vitro some in vitro data saying, for example, imagine that. Let's say you have you want to achieve a high starch diet, right? And you want to induce acidosis to those cows. Uh, and then the first thing that you think about it, okay, I'm just going to dump a lot of starch to that, to one diet, and that's going to cause them to be acidotic. So a lot of starch. But then as you add starch, you have to take out something, right? And so usually you're going to add the corn grain, and you end up taking out a little bit of some forages. So actually you have a confounding where you are changing that uh, forage, right? So I can have more corn silage, less corn silage, more corn grain, less corn grain. That would be one strategy. So I, I put corn silage, a lot of corn grain, and then the other diet, I reduce a corn silage, have the normal or reduced corn, and I increase some other forage, like let's say alfalfa hay or something. But some people, what they do is that, no, I will keep, pretty similar, but what I'm going to do in the low starch is I'm going to add beet pulp, for example, right? So now you have a low and high starch diet where you have different ingredients. And I think what some in vitro study says is that you changing the ingredient, that doesn't mean that that nutrient is going to be the same way when fed to cows and to the rumen environment. That's saying that the starch or the soluble fiber in beet pulp is not the same way the soluble fiber is in another forage, for example, in the rumen, or at least in the microbiology and how they ferment, that may be different. So with that in mind, I think what we have as a practical rule is that we try to keep as consistent as possible. I don't think you have to have the same, so usually farms, they're going to achieve the contour energy diet by increasing the amount of forage. Usually, let's say they would uh, use uh, wheat straw, right, or straw uh, to that diet. That doesn't mean that they have to feed straw after that cow-calf, right? They are going to figure out how much fiber they need, how much physical effective NDF they need, and that can be achieved with, with hay, and it doesn't need to be the straw. But also, we kind of talk about not changing too much to not distress that rumen. So we talk about starch being kind of the same uh, or not being different for more than 10 points. But again, I don't think we have research that proves that. You know, if it is 10 or 15, we say it and it's kind of work it out. That's how it happened in the trials. But it just kind of makes sense not to change uh, too much. But there's some research talking about, you know, how fermentable that starch should be after calving, especially right after calving. There are some research that discuss what is after calving. Is it one week or is it two weeks? Where they say that maybe high moisture corn is not as good as cracked corn, for example, uh, on that first week after calving. And you should wait a little bit uh, until you can use that high moisture or fermentable corn. So... I think in practicality, to be practical, 
we try to use as similar as possible, but it's not a mandate that you have to do that. And I think more than the ingredients, if we could give a number to how much fermentation is happening in the rumen, that you try to keep a little bit more consistent. So if we introduce sugar to whey, I'll try to use it before and after calving. If you use molasses, I'll try to do that before and after calving so you're not damaging the, the rumen or that fermentation pattern too much, right? Because I don't I think that that product out that fermentation, that part of it is VFAs, the volatile acids, but also it's going to be the microbial protein. I think that can get impacted and we should try to get it as much as we can. And I think that's where sometimes, like uh, Brad was talking about, the heifers, where we suffer a little bit that they don't have as much capacity as a multiprox cow, so they, it's not easy to get the nutrients we need into those animals. So you need sometimes to concentrate a little bit more for them, but maybe it's just something on the management that they are coming from a pen and now they are transitioning to, they need to give milk. They have no idea how the milking parlor is and they get put up with bigger cows and they have to fight their way in. So I think there's, you know, we've been talking a lot about the nutrition, but that's one aspect of the transition period, right? There is a whole thing about management and facilities that maybe is even more important, right? We just have a harder time figuring it out. And maybe that's where cows and pasture, they're going to have one behavior and they may have a different uh, perspective on, you know, now you have to bring them to the milking parlor and all that. So I don't think I, I know enough on those aspects to kind of uh, talk about it, but I do think they are very important. Yeah, I agree that that's, uh, there's a lot of aspects when you think about uh, first lactation heifers and just the changes they have to go through housing, milking parlor. There's, you know, the transition period includes nutrition, but there's also a lot of factor, other factors that are included in that uh, that are important as well. Yeah, I don't know how many uh, farms like we don't do here, but for example, you get your heifers uh, and you pass your walk, your heifers through the milking parlor before they calf. I mean, I should, do you guys have an idea on that? But I don't think it's very common. It's not very common. Some may, but not very often. Yeah, I think I see it on, on smaller operations uh, most often. We should yeah, shout I mean, out Kevin Dietzel here. He had a, a, an image on Twitter of him doing exactly that in his milking parlor the other, other week where he's bringing heifers in prior to calving to get them used to it but i i rarely if ever saw it uh, in practice and yeah and i don't think we have enough uh, sorry Luciano, i don't think we have enough even data that will tell hey you guys should be doing that but that'll be some cool stuff to do sorry Luciano, go ahead yeah i was i was going to circle back to one of your first comments about like all the data generated from uh, automatic milking systems and robots there are some farms that have this the robot a box for heifers to learn because that's also something that's hard for them and anecdotally they're saying that they they see a better production for those animals because they know the environment they know what to do it's a different also scenario because it's robots but i'll think they'll be the same for a conventional partner yeah that's uh, that's interesting and i i think like you said phil it's harder to get an answer sometimes and it's little harder research to do sometimes and it's hard for the farmers to work it into their system 
but maybe uh, something to think about because it, it, it could matter a lot. And I think it does matter a lot. Before we get out of here, we have to talk about amino acids. Uh, and there's really two, in my understanding, that matter the most or they're most limited for, for cows during the transition period. Walk me through why we need to worry about amino acids and why we need to specifically worry about methionine and lysine. I, I think it's, again, it's kind of the evolution or as we learn more things, we kind of figure out what's needed or required by the cow. But I think we start by knowing what is the requirement based maybe in crude protein. So how much, pretty much nitrogen we need to feed the cow. Remember crude protein is nitrogen times 625, that's it. Then we start learning, hey, that crude protein maybe may have more bypass protein than or more degradable protein. So we come up with RUP and RDP and how much we should be feeding cows. And then we see, okay, but we need to worry as well about this protein that actually the cow is using. And that's what we call the metabolizable protein, right? So that's actually getting to the duodenum and the cow is using that. But again, Proteins are made of amino acids, and that's where the NRC for dairy cattle, our last one was in 2001, determined since then we know that the cow, especially based on milk yield, is uh, the limiting amino acids are methionine and lysine. And then the idea is if you don't have those two, you can give as much as you want of the other 18 amino acids uh, that the cow is not going to be able to build protein. And that means protein to go into the milk, or that means protein to go to circulate fat as part of the polypoprotein, for example, or VLDL, like we talk about, or protein as uh, immunoglobulins, right, to defend the cow against something. So that's where I think we are being able more and more to understand and measure how much we should be giving to cows if we need to be giving to cows, right? Remember. There, those amino acids are in soybean, they are in soybean meal, they are in blood meal, they are in canola meal, pretty much all your protein uh, sources, they will have those amino acids. So the idea is to figure out in your diet if you're giving the right amount. And I think we've increased the understanding of, hey, even though cows are not giving milk during the close-up period, in the dry period, they also need those amino acids, seems like, for better health after calving. Perhaps some things are related to the cholesterogenesis that is happening, especially in those last three weeks. That was established in the early 2000s by Bell as well. I was talking about, hey, you know, we should be giving more metabolizable protein because we have all this colostrum doing and all this uh, alveoli or memory gland regeneration, and we should be doing that. And now maybe we are seeing now we are seeing some things as also helping with the calf development uh, in utero and after calving as well. And I and I think it's just like I talk about the GenRH being super expensive before. I think that technology also helped that if needed, rumen protected source of those amino acids nowadays they are available, right? And you have different companies. So that makes usually, you know, the prices being lower than if you had just one company or if you were just starting. So I think that's the state now is to formulate for those amino acids. And, and again, since it's required, it's nothing extra or magical. That's going to help the cow 
in the transition period, but we've seen also it helps with reproduction as well. So kind of the goals with the farmer, right? So, but it's nothing magical. It's gonna be related to the amount of milk the cow is producing. So the requirement of that cow, if you need to put it, how much you need to add, but I think it's important to keep an eye on it that that's taken care of. Well, I think we've covered everything we need to today uh, and we're gonna wrap it there. So a big thank you to Luciano and Phil for being here. We really appreciate your time, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. With that, if you have questions, comments, scathing rebuttals, anything that we, we said today, you can send them to the Room at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. If you want more information on this topic, there's a website to go to that's dairyfocus.illinois.edu. And that'll get you a lot of information, uh, get you to a lot of the, the extra articles that you need for this topic. If you want to find more from Extension, you can go to extension.umn.edu. And with that, I think we'll cut the, cut the plugs there. So thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. I'll take the comments. The jerseys are fun to work with because they are, and they're easier to work with because they're small. So, I mean, if you guys want to reconsider your answer, now's the time. <laughs> uh, no take backs, Joe. Oh, Sorry. Yeah. Oh, yes. Hmm.